this week on the Backtable Podcast. You know, there's a Japanese registry with thousands and thousands of patients where they could match up people who had traditional tastes, including the gel foam, with patients who only got the chemo and the pyodol. And it is 100% clear that survival is better with the particulates. And then there's preclinical studies that have looked at this in animals and also in resection specimens, showing that if you leave out any one of the three components, you don't get as much tumor necrosis. So unequivocally, you need the particulates. Now, what if you leave out the lipiodol? Like, for example, when I was a fellow, we did gel foam powder and cisplatinum. There was no lipiodol in how we chemobilized patients during my fellowship. But nowadays, if you leave out lipiodol, what you're probably doing is drug-eluting embolics. And this is a platform that may turn out to have a role delivering new drugs that we currently haven't been able to use, like a Renotecan, but using them to deliver doxorubicin to HAC was never going to work, as anyone who understood taste could have anticipated. Hello, everyone, and uh, welcome to the Backtable podcast, your source of all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. Now, a brief message from our sponsor. For more than 70 years, Varian has been at the forefront of the fight against cancer, enabling advances in oncology in the quest for better patient outcomes. Now, with Varian and Seaman Health and Years as one, they're raising the standard in interventional patient care. Their solutions enable more precision and efficiency, and their commitment to funding research helps build the scientific data necessary to drive the adoption of minimally invasive image-guided procedures. Now, back to the episode. This is Nicholas Fiedelman. I'm an interventional radiologist at the University of California, San Francisco. As your guest host this week, it is my honor to introduce our special guest, Dr. Michael Sulin, professor of radiology at University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Sulin is very well known to everyone in our field and really needs no introduction. He is one of the founding fathers of clinical interventional oncology specialty and has been a major influence over the creation of our specialty that we practice today. Dr. Sulan has been one of the most important advocates and promoters of prospective clinical trials in interventional oncology space, and most recently has been the principal investigator of the randomized embolization trial for neuroendocrine tumors. As an active member, of National Cancer Institute, ecog Akron, Society of Interventional Radiology, Society of Interventional Oncology, and North American Neuroendocrine Tumor Society Research Committees, Dr. Sulan has been incredibly instrumental at moving interventional oncology research projects forward. Dr. Sulan has been recognized as a recipient of many honors and awards, including Society of Interventional Radiology Gold Medal in 2020. Again, it is my absolute distinct honor to welcome Dr. Michael Sulin and to learn about his career in interventional oncology and his experience with transarterial chemoembolization over the years. Michael, welcome. Thanks very much, Nick. Well, I would like to start off by asking you what inspired you to become an interventional oncologist and who were your mentors? So that's a great question. I think one that will be instructive to the younger members of the audience. It really was a case of opportunity knocking on my door. I did a two-year IR fellowship, which was not uncommon in the 1980s. So I did an entire research year focused on benign biliary and gallbladder disease. And at Penn was Dr. Stan Cope, the legend, 
who was already the maven of Bulleary interventions. So that was not going to be my space. At the same time, at Penn, no one was doing cancer therapy, and it wasn't even a particular interest of mine at the time, but I did have considerable experience, both from residency and fellowship, doing bland embolization, chemo embolization, and even intraarterial chemo infusions. And then one day, the phone rang, and it was a patient self-referring for a taste. He had a rare neuroendocrine tumor, a glucagonoma, had recently relocated to the Philadelphia area, and knew he was due for an embolization. Our chief of GI medical oncology at that time was Dr. Daniel Haller, a very famous oncologist who was, in fact, the editor of the Journal of Clinical Oncology. And I excitedly called him about this unusual case and asked him if he would bring the patient in so I could embolize him. And his response was, and I quote, what am I, some kind of hospital whore? Why would I admit a patient that you're treating? And honestly, I owe the birth of the Penn Interventional Oncology Program to that moment. So fortunately, I had done my residency at Johns Hopkins under Dr. Robert White, who was a pioneer in the clinical practice of interventional radiology. So when I trained in IR, it was a clinic and an admitting service. I had my own clinic as a fellow. So I felt perfectly capable of seeing the patient in clinic, admitting him, treating him, and discharging him on my own. And despite his initial response, Dr. Haller was, in fact, quite supportive and helpful to me in developing an interventional oncology practice. He was a great senior mentor, and I learned a lot from him about the science and practice of oncology, how interventional oncology fits in to the medoc world, and he helped introduce me to organized medical oncology in terms of NCI. So a couple of years after I started at Penn, I started doing these cases on my own and doing all my own admissions. Michael Pentecost came out from the University of Southern California to be my first section chief. And USC was also an early site for TACE. So he brought added experience. And Mike was also the president of the SIR at the time. So he was instrumental in plugging me and all the junior faculty into the society. So I started the first TACE workshops at the annual meeting under his mentorship. And he was a fantastic mentor for career development. As a side note, that very first patient that I treated I went on to embolize him 16 times over a dozen years, and he lived for 25 years from diagnosis. Michael, thank you for sharing that. Your answer dovetails nicely into my next question, and that is how your practice changed with incorporation of interventional oncology outpatient clinic, and how were you able to obtain the resources for the clinic, and what advice would you give to our listeners who do not have an outpatient clinic as a part of their practice yet? Well, thanks, Nick. So, you know, as I mentioned, I was very lucky in that I had trained at places where there was a clinical practice of IR. But when I came to Philadelphia, the chairman at both Jefferson and Penn were old school Harvard angiographers who did not believe IR should have a clinical practice. Even though these guys were legendary founders of the early years of IR, this was a blind spot for both of them. They had longstanding gentlemanly relationships with vascular surgery, and just did not see the future turf wars that we young people knew were coming. So as I said, I started the IR clinical service front pen from scratch with no resources. I rounded morning and night. I saw patients in my academic office. I did all the orders, notes, discharge summaries, outpatient, inpatient charting, all by myself. And this went on for almost four years. Interesting, one of the barriers I had to overcome was resistance from my own peers, my own partners at Penn, who felt pressured up their game to match what I was doing. Fortunately, IR at the time had a separate business office. So once I had 50 admissions, I got the financials, which show how much money we made. At the time, IR paid much better than diagnostic radiology and money talks. And once my chairman, Dr. Baum, saw the money, 
He immediately took new construction intended for ultrasound and gave it to me for an IR clinic and approved hiring a clinic nurse. And then we were off and running. And my emissions climbed year over year to a plateau of around 100. And then each subsequent attending we brought on did the same thing because now we had a clinic infrastructure. And we paid very close attention to those financials over time so we could keep expanding our clinic resources. Having a clinic and admitting service is absolutely essential to be a full-time player in tumor boards and to be able to accept outside referrals. I personally book eight hours of high-end cases on my operating days. And you know my partners who haven't developed a big practice get to change the tubes and put in the lines. Also, IR clinics grow your practice and generate new revenue. And that's how you sell it to your practice. Interventional oncology in particular pays very well compared to other aspects of interventional radiology. So for example, you get more money for the same amount of work doing oncology procedures than doing PAD or veins. And at the end of the day, money talks. So if you don't have resources, you need resources, you need to sell it to your group. You just need to show them the money. That's great. And your story is similar to what we had experienced at our center with the growth of our own outpatient clinic and growth of IO practice as a result of improvement of resources for the outpatient clinic. So let's switch gears now and speak about catheter-directed IO interventions, particularly chemoembolization, which is the kind of main topic for today's conversation. How was TACE procedure developed and who were the key thought leaders in development of TACE? So the first report of embolization of malignant liver tumors that I know of came from Dr. Doyon in Paris in 1974, who reported a series of cases using a variety of different particulate embolics. At the same time, in the late 60s and throughout the 70s, lipidol angiography was developed as a diagnostic tool for liver tumors, in fact, described by Marcel Gerbet in France. And then in the, in fact, I remember as a resident doing lipidol angiography followed by CT to try to detect early liver cancers. And then in the early 1980s, Nakamura in Japan put it all together and he emulsified chemotherapy with lipidol to saturate the tumor, intertumoral vasculature and then followed it with gelatin sponge to trap the emulsion in the liver. And that's how conventional taste as we now know it got started. Do you remember doing your first taste procedure? And how did the way that you used to do taste change over the course of your career? Well, that's a good question. So as I mentioned, you know, we did this pretty routinely. When I was a fellow at Jefferson, we had a pretty sizable oncology practice. It was a mixture of bland embolization, actually arterial chemo infusions. We would put catheters in patients for five or 10 days and keep them hospitalized while they got chemotherapy infused into their livers, or we did a lot of peripheral sarcomas as well. And then for taste, at the time, we used a solution of cisplatinum that was mixed with gel foam powder, which is no longer on the market. So all our tastes were done as a gel foam powder cisplatinum combination. And so that's kind of how I did it until I came to Penn. And then when I came to Penn, we sort of switched things up a bit because we wanted to develop our own cocktail. And so I sat down with Dr. Haller, the, the GI medical oncologist, and said, look, we have a chance to sort of start over. So you know, the first thing I did is, you know, I read all the literature I could find on chemoembolization of HCC. Now, remember, this was like 1990, so there wasn't very much literature to read, but I read what there was. Most of it was from Asia. And then we met with the Medox and, you know, their philosophy was go for the kill. Like if you're going to do this procedure, maximum drugs, maximum embolics. And at the time there were three powder drugs available, cisplatinum, mitomycin, and doxorubicin or adromycin. And I literally sat there with a roll of test tubes and contrast and bottles of this powdered drugs. And I just 
tried different combinations until I found like the maximum dose that I could dissolve in 10 cc's of contrast without turning it into sludge. And then we took that neo sludge, not quite sludge, but very concentrated contrast solution of chemotherapy and emulsified it with lapiodol. And then the pharmacy took that and they examined it for stability and for the fact that it remained active. And they actually showed that it was stable and active for 24 hours. And then we had to take it through our pharmacy committee for them to approve the new cocktail. So it was CAM, cis adriamido. And then in terms of the embolics, again, you know, the medical oncologist found where if you can embolize something, embolize it as hard as you can. And what we had at the time was granular PVA or contour emboli. So that was kind of our smallest permanent embolic. And so we switched from gel foam powder to granular PVA with the thinking being that we didn't want a temporary effect. We wanted as durable effect as possible. And so that's how that regimen got developed. And then we started using it. And then for all our patients, regardless of histology, and then, you know, as we accumulated series of patients for each tumor type, primary liver cancer and colon cancer and cholangio and breast cancer, et cetera, we would, you know, present that at SIR and publish it as a paper. And, you know, over the next 10 to 20 years, CAM became the most commonly used regimen in the United States. Thank you for sharing that. Does the drug dosage actually matter? And what were the doses that you had presented to your pharmacy committee? All right. So one thing that's been always sort of a gray area is drug combinations and drug doses. You see lots of papers, almost all of them retrospective, looking at, you know, one drug versus two drugs versus three drugs in different doses. And I would say it doesn't matter in that sense. We've, we've never demonstrated that it does matter. Let's put it that way. I mean, you can find individual papers arguing for one combination over another, but really in terms of being systematically studied, that's never been done. So we don't know whether one drug versus three drugs matters. And also the exact dosing, you know, everyone has variations on the cocktail in terms of how many milligrams that they, 100 of cisplatinum, 50 of adromycin, and 10 of mitomycin. But you can adjust that. For instance, you could use less docs and get more mitomycin in there as long as you don't have so much powder that it turns into sludge. So there are lots of variants on that, and we don't really have good evidence supporting one versus the other. Thank you. Let's just take a quick step back here and We've already started talking about this, but what are the three integral components of conventional taste and are all of them actually necessary? Uh, that's a very important question, right? So classical taste, it's important to understand, is drugs, lapiodol, and a solid embolic. If you leave out the particulate part, the solid embolic, you're just doing chemoinfusion or lapiodolization, which only has a very temporary embolic effect because the lapiodol will wash out in about 45 minutes. And, you know, there's a Japanese registry with thousands and thousands of patients where they can match up people who had traditional tastes, including the gel foam, with patients who only got the chemo and the pyodol. And it is 100% clear that survival is better with the particulates. And then there's preclinical studies that have looked at this in animals and also in resection specimens showing that if you leave out any one of the three components, you don't get as much tumor necrosis. So unequivocally, you need the particulates. Now, what if you leave out the lapiodol? Like, for example, when I was a fellow, we did gel foam powder and cisplatinum. There was no lapiodol in how we chemobilized patients during my fellowship. But nowadays, if you leave out lapiodol, what you're probably doing is drug-eluting embolics. And this is a platform that may turn out to have a role delivering new drugs that we currently haven't been able to use, like arenotecan. But using them to deliver doxorubicin to HAC was never going to work, as anyone who understood taste could have anticipated. 
And in fact, there are three randomized controlled trials showing there are identical outcomes for microspheroidal embolization of HCC with or without doxorubicin at the price of 10 times higher hepatobiliary toxicity. So no one should be doing this. And in fact, DevDox is now prescribed in the NCCN guidelines because it doesn't work and it has unacceptable liver toxicity. So that leaves us with the third component, the drug, which is honestly the big unanswered question. So the dominance of taste versus bland embolization is an artifact of history. You know, randomized controlled trials of taste versus best supportive care for HCC were done 20 plus years ago. And that's what established taste in the guidelines. And the same studies were never done for bland embolization. So all the guidelines refer to taste because that's what we have evidence for. But, you know, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. So, in fact, there was a bland arm in the Levet randomized trial. But their study design was such that as soon as any arm proved statistically superior to best of card of care, they shut down the study. So the bland arm was, in fact, nipping at the heels of taste. Taste hit a p-value of 0.049 and bland was 0.051. Now, it was so close. And in fact, the long-term survival was the same in both arms. So probably if they have just continued the study a little longer, we would have seen that bland embolization, in fact, was better than the best court of care as well. But we never proved that. Now you have the precision trial. So you have precision five in Europe and precision Italia, which randomized conventional taste to DebDox. And it basically showed that they are equivalent in terms of overall survival. All right. So we know that DebDox is no better than bland. Does that mean the same for C taste? You know, if A equals B and B equals C, does A necessarily equal C? So that's the unanswered question. And so that's what the RetNet trial is, ad is addressing. You know, it's a randomized embolization trial for neuroendocrine tumors that had three arms, you know, bland, conventional taste, and deb taste. And as most people know, the deb taste arm, in fact, was closed because of the unacceptable toxicity levels. So it crossed the safety threshold and was shut down by the DSMB very early. So now we're just looking at bland versus C-taste. And that study finished accrual in April of this year. So, you know, given that it's neuroendocrines, it'll probably take about a year and a half or so to read out in terms of the PFS endpoint. But at least for NETS, we'll then have an answer to the question, is there really a difference in oncologic benefit from blandibalization versus chemobalization? Now, we're also looking at toxicities and side effects of the two. And we're looking at the patient-reported experience in terms of healthcare-related quality of life surveys that are specific to net patients. So any one of those three dimensions could prove to be different from the other, and it remains to be seen. Now, one thing about how the RetNet study is powered is, you know, if there's not a big difference, no one's going to care, right? So we powered it for a big difference. We powered it for almost two-to-one superiority of chemobilization over bland, which may not be true. And if it's not, then so what? Right. But we're still going to get an answer from a prospective comparative study that, in fact, has never been done. Congratulations on setting that study up. And as one of the centers, I believe, second or third highest occurring center for RetNet, actually, I would like to attest to the importance of this trial, and we will see the results in the coming years. I remember learning as a fellow that Conventional taste needs to be delivered as a one-to-one -one mixture of drug and lipidal, and the two components need to be mixed gently, looking kind of like a lava lamp in the end before they're injected. And only when I was a junior attending, I became aware of the Asian literature on the optimal taste technique and emulsification technique. Could you please tell us how to properly combine the drug solution and lipidal? 
Yeah, I think this is an interesting example of how, you know, it's like an inverse square laws. Knowledge perpetuates around the globe. It just gets diluted out and diluted out and kind of loses some of its essence. So the technique was really developed in Japan and then in France. And there is ample literature, including benchtop studies, animal studies, and human studies that address the optimal method of creating a lipidol emulsion. And, you know, one-to-one mix is not it. And how that, I mean, even some of my partners do one-to-one, right? So this is somehow this got disseminated through practice, even though it's completely contrary to what we know is how you should do this. So if you want to learn about it, I highly recommend reading the papers out of Institut Gustave Roussy outside Paris by Thierry Debert and Fred Duchamp, who have done a lot of very basic work in this area over, since like the 70s and 80s. And there was a technical paper on how to do C-taste that I and Terry DeBear were both co-authors of, along with several other experts. And that's a very good reference that I would refer people to look at. So the essence is to create a stable water and oil emulsion you need a minimum ratio of two to one of oil to chemo. And some people use three to one or even four to one. And remember the oil is the carrier, right? So that's what's selectively taken up and retained in the tumors. The chemo is in the aqueous phase, right? So you have to have a water and oil emulsion. So the aqueous phase has to be the little droplets and the continuous phase has to be the oil and the oil will then carry the droplets to the tumor where they can release the chemotherapy. So to create a stable oil and water emulsion, you need a a higher amount of oil than chemo. And then you take your source syringes, hook them up to a stopcock. You always inject the aqueous phase into the oil phase first, and then you vigorously emulsify by pumping through the stopcock. And generally we say 20 to 25 times. You can also listen. I use audio cues because when you first start mixing, you're going to hear a very loud, bubbly, swishy, squeaky sound. And that's the turbulence of the large droplets going through the stopcock. And then once you break it down to 30 to 40 micron micelles, which is what you want, not a lava lamp, the sound will go away because now the turbulence, you've got your droplets small enough that there's no turbulence going through the stopcock. So 20 to 25 swishes, it should go silent at the end, and then you're ready to go. Now, another thing that I do is I don't mix it up all at once. I start with my emulsion. So I'll take, say, four cc's of oil. I'll put in two cc's of the chemo solution, emulsify that, and administer it, and look at the flow rate. And that way, if I start at two to one, I can adjust my ratio in subsequent aliquots based on the flow to the tumor with the goal of getting most of the dose in by the time things slow down. And then when I see things slowing down, I then add my particles, and we routinely use 100 to 300 micron microspheres, to my final aliquot. So, you know, I see some people give all their emotional and, and then just inject particles afterward, but then you're just allowing time for washout to happen. So I put my particles in my final aliquot of the chemo oil emulsion so that it shuts the flow down right as that last batch goes in and traps it inside the tumor. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. Now we started talking about the embolic particles. Does the size matter and the type of the particle? Has there been any work to demonstrate that one type of particulate agent is better than others? So there is preclinical data that suggests that it might matter. Uh, There's not good clinical data. There's some retrospective data that suggests. So basically, if you're going to use particulate agents, most of the world uses gel foam because it's cheap and readily available. And they just chop it up into little bits or it can come packaged in one millimeter cubes. And that's like Asia and South America. In the US and Europe, we tend to use microspheres of various sizes. And I can't say that there is a 
definitively a particular size that's better than the others. I don't think that's really been demonstrated. I tend to go very small when I do only bland embolization, but 100 to 300 for chemo embolization, because I'm just trying to sort of stop the flow and trap my emulsion and the tumor. And, you know, of course, if it's large and hypervascular and the vessels are engorged, I might even go to three to 500. In terms of the material, that's a very interesting question because you have most of the microsphere platforms are polyvinyl alcohol based. And polyvinyl alcohol is a permanent intravascular occlusive agent that does not induce much of an inflammatory reaction and has a low recanalization rate. And then you have the tristacryl nitrate platforms like embospheres. And they are extremely interesting because, in fact, they are not a permanent intravascular occlusive agent. In the liver, they transit the arterial wall within about three days. So by three days, 90% of your microspheres are actually extravascular in the interstitium, where they induce an inflammatory reaction and track macrophages and other immune cells. And so that causes a couple of things. One, it's less of a permanent occlusive agent, so you're more likely to be able to go back and treat the patient again. And there's the possibility that they're actually stimulating an immune response in the interstitium that could be harnessed with some synergistic effect, for instance, an immune checkpoint inhibitor. Now, what we don't know and we haven't characterized yet exactly is the nature of those inflammatory cells coming in. So just because they're macrophages, like we don't know if they're type 1 or type 2, are they pro-immune cells or are they immunosuppressive cells? So there's some work to be done there, but clearly... PVA and non-PVA platform microspheres are biologically different in their effects. And there is some clinical data suggesting that taste series where they use embospheres, that the outcomes are better than when you use PVA. But again, sort of single institution retrospective stuff, not proven, but you know, fruitful for future research. Definitely a very interesting area for future research especially with the potential synergistic effect with immunotherapy and checkpoint inhibitors. And I think we're going to see another evolution. You know there's a number of sort of liquid gel embolics that are out in clinical trials right now from two or three different companies. And these are agents that will become solid embolic. You inject them and they polymerize in various fashions, depends on which company's product you're working with. But the idea is that they'll sail out and actually get all the way to the capillary level. So in other words, they'll penetrate much more deeply than any particle will, but they won't shunt because they'll polymerize in situ and become a solid. So it sort of overcomes the major deficit of particles, which is if you want to get small enough to get into the tumor, then you're going to start losing them out the back end like you do with Y90. And these, you know, we are in clinical trials for both tumor and non-tumor embolic targets, but we've also been using them in our lab in our autochthonous rat model. And what we see is we're getting much better tumor necrosis and better PFS in the rats compared to using a particulate agent. And of course, another intriguing thing about a colloidal gel is the potential to use it to carry payloads. So you know, if you're going to get all the way to the capillary level and basically essentially be at the cell level of the cells, could you be loading a therapeutic agent, be it a chemotherapeutic or something else, into these gels, which will then literally be delivered inside the tumor, the way we think lipiodol delivers the chemotherapy during conventional taste. So this is going to be very interesting over the next few years to see how that develops. Yes, very interesting. And of course, another interesting question there is how well the drug might diffuse out of these gels. That adds another layer of complexity. Being a incredible expert in chemoembolization. 
Could you tell us how you manage common side effects of TACE, particularly the post-embolization syndrome? And do you have a certain periprocedural clinical protocol that you follow? Yeah, that's a very good question because like so much of what we do in interventional radiology, we have guidelines for practice published by the SIR, which are consensus-based. And of course, when you ever have a consensus-based guideline, what that means is nobody knows, right? So everyone's just pooling their personal experience and thinking what they think is best because we actually don't have data. So in terms of post-mobilization syndrome, what we do have data for is anti-emetic regimen. An anti-emetic regimen is very important, and there have been randomized trials of components of the anti-emetic regimens, particularly steroids, showing that patients do better if you give it than if you don't. So there are standard oncology guidelines for anti-emetic regimens, depending upon how emetic the therapy you're giving is. And, you know, chemomalization is a highly emetogenic therapy. So we use a combination of Benadryl, Zofran, and Decadron, which is a standard straight out of the ASCO guidelines combination. There are variations on that. People, you can put in Amend, which is a, yet another class of antibiotic drug. It's quite expensive, but some people use that. But you know, basically, we use a standard oncology-based antibiotic regimen, and that's 100% evidence-based. Everyone should be doing that. Now, antibiotic therapy is given prophylactically according to SIR guidelines for all embolizations, which is completely not evidence-based, except in the setting of prior biliary interventions. So we know that patients with prior biliary interventions, that is the number one risk factor for getting a liver abscess after taste because of the microembolic injury to the bile ducts. We know that an aggressive antibiotic regimen will reduce that abscess rate from nearly 100% down to about 20%. And of course, as was shown in your paper, if you switch to Y90, you can cut that by more than half again. So we give antibiotics to everybody. That is what the SAR guidelines say. But my guess is if we actually did a trial, what we would see is that prophylactic antibiotics aren't necessary unless you have a biliary intervention. As far as pain control, everyone kind of has their own cocktail. We know that pain is a common manifestation of post syndrome. It's highly variable among patients. Some get very little pain, some get a lot. So aside from our conscious sedation regimen, we just give PRN pain medication you know, on an individual basis as needed. That being said, there are some people who you know have terrible pain from experience, so maybe they could use a PCA. And then if you're going to do Dabiri, drug-leading beats the Rita TCAN, that seems to be a regimen that's associated with considerably more pain than conventional taste is. And there are various hypotheses about why that may be true, but I say it's not universally true, but it's often the case that patients in recovery get a lot of pain, usually not right at the moment of embolization, but say an hour later. And so there are definitely some centers that if they're doing Dabiri, they prophylactically put a patient on a PCA for several hours. And then the question is, inpatient or outpatient? So we, for decades, routinely kept people overnight, originally as an inpatient status, which actually was amazingly lucrative. That's part of the reason why we got so much support for our program, because admitting patients to the hospital overnight, the hospital made a ton of money on that DRG. So they liked us. And then, of course, the insurance company stopped paying for it. So then we went to overnight observation and an observation unit, 23-hour stay. And then, you know, we started getting more pressure from the hospital about resource consumption. And, you know, Dan Brown did a very nice study out of his center at Vanderbilt showing that by instituting a same-day discharge protocol, they were able to double the rate of patients going home the same day. And they estimated they saved the hospital like $200,000. So that was our quality improvement project this past year, where we came up through a sort of interdisciplinary mechanism with the NIR. We have sort of a shared governance 
process, which gets the techs and nurses and admins and docs and everybody together and came up with same day discharge criteria. And so now patients are evaluated four hours after embolization. And if they meet same day discharge criteria, they can go home if they want to. And the attending agrees. And if they don't, they generally go to 20th hour ops. And similar to Dr. Brown's experience at Vanderbilt, we doubled our same day discharge rate. And we estimated in six months, the hospital saved like $80,000. So I think thinking proactively about that and having a system in place to evaluate same day discharge is highly worthwhile. You know, you get paid the same, but you know, your hospital will save a lot of money in terms of actual cost of caring for the patients. Most of that's nursing. And you also gain the opportunity cost that you're freeing up all those beds that you might've been taking up in your observation unit, which then can be used by other surgeons who need those. And so there's an opportunity cost to be gained as well. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, We have instituted a protocol similar to yours as well, and have been sending a lot of our host patients home, especially for patients with HCC, who tend to have smaller treatment zones and lighter or less intense post-embolization syndromes. Now, as a big expert worldwide in neuroendocrine tumor treatment, how does your peri-procedural protocol for patients with NET differ from patients with, say, HCC? So we have kind of a knee-jerk response where every net coming in for embolization gets 500 mics of a creotide subcutaneously before the procedure. Mostly they're on depot, line reotide or octreotide, but regardless of whether they are or not and when they got their monthly shot, we give them a subcutaneous booster that day. And we do that regardless of functional status. So there are some people who only do it for functional tumors. In other words, people who have manifestations of hormone activity, they block them and don't bother blocking the patients who don't manifest clinical signs of hormone secretion, figuring that they don't need it. Although, of course, that's not necessarily true, right? So people could have subclinical levels of hormone secretion. You can still get massive release. Now, there's no evidence basis whatsoever for a triotide blockade for anything. I mean, for us, for surgery, for dental work, I mean, that is just standard practice everywhere. The patients expect it and want it. It's come ingrained kind of in the medical world. But a lot of people are very skeptical about this, including the surgeons. You know, it does seem like there's very little relationship between the incidence of cardiovascular responses to an intervention and whether the patients are blocked or not. So actually, that'd be a great study to do someday is to take patients and randomize them to a creatide or a placebo and just see if there really is any difference. There've been some retrospective studies where people in in practices where not everyone gets blocked, just looking at it. And there's probably more hypertension in the patients who don't get blocked. But in terms of a true manifestation of carcinoid crisis, I mean, honestly, I've only seen that twice in my life and one was from a paracentesis. So I'm not really sure we need to do this and maybe someday we'll actually figure it out. I like your practice of administering a single dose of subcutaneous actreotide, and you mentioned 500 micrograms. Uh, We do something different. We do an intravenous infusion procedurally, which we often might stop on the day of the procedure in the post-procedure area, or we might continue overnight for patients with more symptomatic neuroendocrine tumors, in addition to subcutaneous actreotide and H1 and H2 blockers. But I like your regimen. It's much simpler than what we do. Right. I mean, since we don't know if it works at all, at least we keep it simple. Some people only give 200 or 250 sub-Q, some give 500. And of course, the IV infusion, as you described, is a very common practice around the country for 
both surgery and IR. So we don't know if one's right or wrong. I suspect that none of them are necessary, but certainly no one can say that there's a particular regimen. I don't think, I mean, my own experience is say you don't need an IV infusion because we've been doing this for 30 years and nothing bad ever happens, hardly. So I think it would simplify your regimen. It's kind of like the antibiotic prophylaxis for the biliary patients. Like we used to do, we start with this very complicated regimen with bowel preps ahead of time and oral antibiotics and IV antibiotics. And then Dan Brown came up with his once a day moxifloxacin regimen and had the same results. And we're like, oh, well, that's easy. And we all switched to moxifloxacin because it seems to work just as well. And it was way less complicated than the five different meds we were using. I completely agree. Moxifloxacin has definitely changed our practice because we used to do these bowel regimens that you described in your paper and then switch to once a day moxifloxacin. Although I have to say that some patients' insurance companies do not pay for moxifloxacin, which makes things a little bit tricky sometimes. Well, you can use Levaquid or Cipro instead. I mean, they're all fluoroquinolones and you know the advantage they share is they have very high biliary excretion rates. So the levels in the liver are quite high. And you know, Cipro is a lot cheaper than Levaquin or, or moxifloxacin. So not quite sure why we all landed on moxi, but if you have insurance problems, like I said, you can use Levaquin. And one of the nice things about moxifloxacin is one day dosing. You know, Levaquin is twice a day. I think Cipro might be twice a day also. True. We already talked about the retina trial for which you serve as the principal investigator. And you've also been a principal investigator and co-investigator on many other trials in the interventional oncology space. Which of these trials, in your opinion, had the most impact on modern IO practice? I would say knocking DebDocs out of the guidelines was probably most impactful for patient safety. And, you know, there are, frankly, there are patients who are in the DebDocs arm of the RetNet trial who years later still haven't fully recovered from the damage to the liver that was done by their DebDocs embolization. So, I mean, and, you know, NCACN guidelines change. So if that's the only thing we get out of that study, that's a win. The other big studies I've done in the past, especially the ones that were through ECOG and Akron, they were large randomized trials of things like taste with or without serafinib or chemolization in colon cancer. And they basically failed to accrue adequately to come to any conclusion. So it shows you one of the perils of doing big randomized trials is sometimes they just fail. They don't fail because your answer was negative. They failed because you did all this work and you, know, you needed 350 patients, you got 180, and then people ran out of gas. So those don't end up changing the world for all the work that you did. Most of the trials we do now that I'm super excited about are really too early phase. They're not going to be practice changing because they're all phase one or phase two trials, but I'm super excited about where they're headed. And what I'm hoping is that if the phase one, two studies are all positive, that will then lead to practice changing phase three trials. So for example, one of the studies we're doing now in endocrine tumors is radiosensitization for Y90 by giving simultaneous capecitabine and temozolomide. So CAPTEM is a standard net regimen that has its own pretty decent response rate and durability. And we piloted that several years ago. We published our feasibility study. Now we have a multi-center, you know, single arm phase two for just confirming efficacy in another 50 patients. But I can tell you that we've treated over 40 patients here at Penn since we started, even before the phase two trial opened up and our PFS is three years. And like, there is no therapy for neuronal tumors that has a PFS of three years. So even I don't believe it can be that good, but that would be remarkable if it were true. We also are very interested in embolization and as an immunostimulant. And we know historically from back in the 1980s that 
embolizing kidney cancer is a immunostimulant that improves overall survival across all stages of disease and that you actually get an epscopal response in patients who are stage four metastatic at presentation and like 13%, including complete responses in half those patients. And now that immune checkpoint therapy is standard in kidney cancer, we have a trial where we're putting them on dual immune checkpoint therapy with Ipi and Nevo, and then embolizing the dominant kidney tumor. And our first patient had like 100 metastases, they almost all disappeared. Now, that could have been just the Ipinevo. It could happen with just embolization, but I like to think that it actually is a synergy between the two. And obviously we just have to work our way through the first 20 patients in the phase one and make sure it's safe. And also, of course, we're getting all sorts of correlatives, you know, blood and tissue samples to try to understand the mechanism. And then the other approach we're taking is targeting the metabolic stress response. So, you know, regardless of whether you believe in the chemotherapy or not, whether you do bland or chemolization, the major way you're killing the tumor is ischemia. You know, you're depriving it of nutrients and oxygen. And there's no particular reason to think that chemotherapeutic drugs are synergistic with that effect. In fact, probably they don't work as well under ischemic conditions, but there are plenty of drugs that do. So you'll have Nadine Abujadeh's trial that she was the leader of a phase one of terapazamine. So terapazamine is a drug that causes free radicals in the setting of ischemia. So they did intraarterial terapazamine with bland embolization and showed like a 50% complete response rate in HCC. So that was supposed to go on to a randomized phase two study. And then the company had a funding shortfall. So we're hoping that will pick up again because that will be amazing. And then you know, the work we've done in our own lab here, we've demonstrated that tumors survive severe ischemia through autophagy and the protein unfolding response and through HIF activation and angiogenesis. And so we're doing trials now where we're targeting those specifically with drugs and trying to see if we can't make ischemic-based therapy work better. So those are all super exciting things that maybe will turn out to be practice changers, but we're years away from that. This is really, really exciting and particularly interesting to hear about utilization of new agents that work better in the hypoxic environment, as well as a movement of embolic procedures into different organs like the kidney. Now, in many practices around the country, there has been a recent transition from chemoembolization to Y90 radiation segmentectomy for patients with hepatocellular cancer, particularly as a bridging strategy prior to transplantation. And at least in our practice, I can tell you that the number of chemoembolizations that we do for HCC has really plummeted in the last few years. What, in your opinion, is the current role of chemoembolization in the current days of commonly performed Y90 radiation segmentectomy procedures and other Y90 delivery techniques? So that's a great counterpart to the prior question. So TEAR is sort of the vitamin C of the IR world, complete with its own Linus Pauling. Every single randomized clinical trial of TEAR for HCC has been negative. And in fact, a recent systematic meta-analysis concluded, and I quote, there is no improvement in overall survival with Y90. And this is compared to systemic therapy, not even to TACE. So assertions that TEAR is superior to TACE for bridging or downstaging only come from uncontrolled single institution retrospective studies. And if you examine those using a systematic meta-analysis with other trials, both those claims have been refuted. So actually, chemobilization is better for downstaging and bridging based on meta-analyses. Now, of course, you know, what's a meta-analysis? You took a bunch of bad studies and put them together and tried to make a good study. 
So I'm not saying we know definitively that answer, but what we can say is there's no evidence that Y90 is actually better than Tace and, you know, for either of those roles. Now, that's not saying there aren't roles for reomalization. Of course, there are. So as we discussed previously, among patients with prior biliary intervention, the risk of infection is more than halved compared to Tace. So that's my first-line therapy for patients who've had a Whipple or a biliary stent or a sphincterotomy, just from a safety standpoint. There are patients who are too frail to handle the post-embolization syndrome, or perhaps they're a caretaker for a family member, or they have a employment that they can't be disabled from. And so taste is not the best option for them, and they may be better served by going the slow and glow approach with tear. And of course, as you mentioned, radiation segmentectomy, so that's an alternative, that's an ablative strategy, right? So now we're thinking completely differently. It's like, can I microwave it? Oh, it's in a bad location, but I can do a radiation segmentectomy and accomplish the same thing. So I think when you're thinking curative intent therapies, which are essentially ablative strategies, there's definitely a role for radiation segmentectomy, both HCC and in other things. And then you have other concepts like radiation lobectomy. So again, radiation lobectomy is a new adjuvant curative intent strategy where the goal is to get the patient to surgery. So people are sort of gaining enthusiasm for radiation lobectomy versus portal vein embolization in this space. And why is that? Well, we know that currently, if you do portal vein embolization, somewhere between 70, 80% of patients make it to surgery, but a bunch don't. And the ones that don't primarily don't, like 85% of them fail to get surgery because they had intrapatic progression. So the thinking is, well, gee, if we did radiation lobectomy, we are treating the tumor too. And so maybe we could inhibit that intrapatic progression and more patients will get surgery. On the flip side, it takes longer to get hypertrophy with radiation lobectomy. So, you know, if you do a PVE, they're ready for surgery in a few weeks. If you're doing radiation lobectomy, you're talking three, six months. I mean, the medium time to adequate hypertrophy is four and a half months. But what you're doing is you're giving a tincture of time to that patient. So if they're going to med out outside the liver, that you give it time for that to happen if they have bad biology and you never would have cured them with a radical surgery. So on one hand, you're maybe controlling the intrapatic progression, getting more patients to surgery. On the other hand, you're weeding out the bad biology. They're going to relapse after surgery anyway, which might decrease the resection rate, but improve your DFS for the patients who do get surgery. So that is a very interesting question. And in fact, we're working on a trial in ECOG Atkin right now where we're going to take colorectal cancer patients and randomize them between radiation lobectomy and PVE. And that's going to be a lot of fun. We've been working with our surgical oncology colleagues. And of course, we like doing that because they think like we do and we don't have all the medonks getting in our way. We know that radiation lobectomy is feasible and safe. So there's enough experience saying we can do that. And you can still resect after that. Although I have to say, not all the surgeons have enough experience to believe that yet. So there's some resistance from the surgeons who haven't had as much experience with it. But you know, we don't have any data on oncologic outcomes. All we know about is feasibility, that you can do it and that patients can still get surgery. So all we have oncologic outcome data for PVE, but we don't have it for racial lobectomy as yet. So we're going to learn a lot by doing a prospective study, which has really never been done for either of these. Not only do we get to compare the two, but we're going to learn a lot about each of them just by doing it in a multi-center perspective trial. So that's going to be a lot of fun. That's great. And one other thing that we would hopefully learn from this is how to properly do radiation lobectomy in terms of y 90 dosimetry, which is another question. It's a very important question. And, you know, one of the, you know, we've been working on this trial for almost two years now. And part of it is, you know, 
how do you standardize PVE? So we get a bunch of PVE, you know, you have your glue people, you have your particle coil people, doesn't matter. Some people think it does, some people think it doesn't. So you kind of had to get a group of PVE gurus together and get them all to agree like, okay, for a trial, we will all agree that this is the acceptable method or range of methods. And then for Rad Lobe, it's the same thing. You know, you get Riyadh or Bobby, Bo, Armin, and Dan Brown all in the same room. And, you know, you get these four gurus of Y90 therapy and say, all right, if you had to write one protocol for Rad Lobe that you all would buy into, what would it be? And of course, as you alluded to, they all do it differently. Some people get tumor boosts. You know, some people, they argue over how much dose the liver needs. But for a trial like this, you know, it has to be one size fits all. You have to come to some concurrence. And, you know, the risk with a new technique is what if you do it wrong? What if you do the whole study and you don't, people don't see the results they like, and they come back and say, well, you didn't do the racial lobectomy correctly. You know, that's the risk you take. So you have to have some harmonization. And then you alluded to the dosimetry issue. This is one thing that the racial oncologists really harp on is that you have to have centralized review of dosimetry, like they're doing for the doorway study. You know, you can't just let people do this on their own. You have to have people pre-op their patients come up with a symmetry plan and then submit it to some central gurus who will review it and make sure that they're towing the line as far as how it has to be done for the trial. You know, and that adds obviously a layer of complexity, but you have to do it. Agreed. Agreed. Very, very important to have oversight over that whole process. Now, I'd like to wrap up our conversation and ask you about what you think the future holds for chemoembolization. Is chloroquine and autophagy the answer? What are some of the considerations as we move the field towards TASTE 2.0? Yeah, I think that's a good question. And, you know, it's, it's kind of what we alluded to previously. My gut reaction is that cytotoxic chemotherapy drugs are not the best technique for TASTE, even though that's what we've been doing for the last 40 years. You know, TASTE primarily works via ischemia. And using drugs that make sense in the setting of ischemia is... I think a much more sensible mechanism. So we mentioned the tirapazamine approach, which I certainly hope will you know ramp back up into a real trial, and the trials that we're starting ourselves. So one of the things you can do is block autophagy, and the typical drug used for that is hydroxychloroquine. So we did a study where we gave people oral hydroxychloroquine, and that study foundered, and which you know again shows the pitfalls of all clinical trials. So the problem is that to load people with hydroxychloroquine orally takes weeks. And patients don't want to wait weeks to get their tumor treated. You know, they know of a liver cancer, they know you could embolize it and convincing people to delay that by a month or more to load them with some drug, which may or may not make a difference. You know, we couldn't get enough people to agree to that, to accrue the study. We ended up having to fold it. So now the approach we're taking is we're going to give it intraarterially. So we'll do taste with, or well, we'll start with a phase one study. We're going to give intraarterial hydroxychloroquine. And that study, by the way, just got funded and approved. We're doing that within the VA system. And so we'll give intraarterial hydroxychloroquine and embolize them. And then after a sort of safety phase one cohort, which may have some dose escalation involved, then assuming that all works out, we'll go into a randomized phase two, where they'll get taste with or without the intraarterial hydroxychloroquine and see if that makes a difference in terms of tumor response and tumor control. And then for the colorectal group, what we're doing is Dabiri, because you know if you're going to chemoembolize colorectal, at least there's better evidence for Dabiri than any other technique. Still an unanswered question definitively in my mind, but promising. 
And we're going to put them on a shorter course of oral hydroxychloroquine and exitinib. So exitinib is a VEGF receptor antagonist, very potent. It's actually approved for use as an oral agent with several types of cancers. It's generally not used in the GI world as much as bevacizumab because bevacizumab, which is a VEGF antibody, you know, is much better tolerated than exitinib, is less toxicity. But of course, as an interventional radiologist, you know, the problem that with bevacizumab is we have to stop it for all our procedures because the risk of both bleeding and thrombosis. So they can't be on it if we're doing chemomobilization. Exitinib, even though it has some more systemic toxicities, doesn't have any of the bleeding or thrombosis problems that bevacizumab or Avastin has. And there actually was a single arm phase two study of like 50 patients with HCC who got taste plus exitinib. That was published a few years ago. So we know that that is safe and feasible. And they had a very good response rate in that paper. I mean, it wasn't controlled. So you don't know if it was better than it would have been without the exitinib. But nonetheless, we know we can do it. So for the colorectal group, we're doing Dubiri with oral exitinib and hydroxychloroquine. And again, just you know, looking at correlatives, but also looking at do we increase our response rate and our time to progression in those tumors? And then I think the other very interesting area in terms of the immunotherapy world, as I alluded to with real cell carcinomas, is using IR techniques like both embolization and ablation as immunostimulants to get the immune checkpoint therapy to work better. And also things like CAR T cells. You know, CAR T cells is a very exciting new form of immune-based therapy where, you know, the patient's own natural killer T cells are transformed with that chimeric antigen receptor to recognize and attack their own tumor cells. And it works great for liquid tumors, right? Because like leukemia is, that's what it's developed for because all those cancer cells are floating around the bloodstream and you just infuse tens of millions of these targeted killer cells in the same bloodstream. And they're just like submarines. They just sail through the ocean and just blast all the cancer cells out. But they haven't worked very well for solid tumors because they just can't get there. They, solid tumors are very good at protecting themselves from the immune system. And we need to be able to break down the barriers in these solid tumors to allow CAR T cells to get in there, to allow checkpoint agents to get in there. And that's what we're good at, you know, by direct injection or ablation or embolization, we can break down the resistance of solid tumors and then allow these systemic therapies to get in. So I think what we're going to see is in our short-term future, many trials that combine interventional oncologic approach with a systemic agent of some form and looking for synergy. Very exciting developments going on in this field, and certainly we'll all stay tuned as these trials come to fruition and, and read out. Michael, I would like to thank you very much for sharing all your thoughts and experience regarding chemoembolization and your practice as an interventional oncologist this morning. It's been a real pleasure and honor speaking with you. I would like to also thank Backtable.com for providing a platform for this interview and many others and thank all of our listeners. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon, with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. 
Social media and PR by Anne Dang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.